1: Hello, and welcome to the second episode in a special series on the New Books Network, featuring books in interpretive, political, and social science. I'm Nick Cheeseman, host of the series, and until year's end, a visiting researcher at Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto, Japan. In the last episode, I spoke with Peregrine Schwarze and Devorah Yanau about their methodology text, Interpretive Research Design, and you can find a link to that episode on the webpage where this one is featured. In this episode, we turn to an exemplary interpretive study, Everyday Exposure, Indigenous Mobilization and Environmental Justice in Canada's Chemical Valley, authored by Sarah Marie Weeb, an assistant professor in political science at the University of Hawaii, published in 2016 by UBC Press, and winner of the 2017 Charles Taylor Book Award for the best book in political science that employs or develops interpretive methodologies and methods. Sarah, I am delighted to have you join us to discuss your book and belated congratulations on the award.
0: Thank you so much, Nick, for the invitation. I'm so pleased to speak with you.
1: In a foreword to Everyday Exposure, the public philosopher James Tully writes that every once in a while an outstanding work of scholarship comes along that transforms the way a seemingly intractable injustice is seen and, in so doing, also transforms the way it should be approached and addressed by all concerned. Yours, he continues, is one such work. What is this seemingly intractable injustice to which he refers, and how does your book help readers to see it differently?
0: In his generous opening remarks to the book, he's referring to the ongoing everyday reality of living in a place like Canada's Chemical Valley, where there is an Indigenous reserve the Omdinang Nation, which is surrounded by the densest concentration of petrochemical and polymer refineries in the country and and perhaps possibly the world, given the, the density of these plants in relation to the community. And so every single day, their bodies are exposed to an unknown mixture of chemicals in the environment that affect their environmental health, their own physical health, the health of their land, the health of the plants, the animals, the water. And it's something that this community has to deal with. With every single day, it's often out of sight and out of mind for most Canadians. And I was alerted to the situation through a film called The Disappearing Male, which featured women from the community, in particular a woman named Ada Lockridge, who was speaking out about the concerns around reproductive health in the community. And I just thought to myself, how could this be happening? And so I think part of the work here as a political ethnographer was really to kind of document these injustices and try to bring them to light.
1: Let's go into that site before we try and do any more work in thinking through what you encountered there and how you went about your work as a political ethnographer. Walk us in there to Chemical Valley. Take us there with you. What do we see there? What do we hear? What do we smell? What do we feel?
0: The first time that I went to Chemical Valley, I met an activist from the community named Ada Lockridge, and we met at a diner um, called the Leaky Tank. And as you can see, the community has a sense of humor. It's really part of, I think, coping with the everyday environmental injustices. And so I remember that we met at the Leaky Tank, and she took me on a toxic tour, and the toxic tour involves driving around to sites of interest and care and concern in the community. So we went from the north end of the reserve towards the parkway. And what I could recall right away were the mixture of smells and such a range of egg smells. And it makes you almost sick, like you want to vomit. And that was my experience. I felt very ill. And many of the activists. That I worked with and the community members would say to me, you know, when you come here, pay attention to your body. And it is an extremely affective environment in terms of not only the smells, but the sirens that go off. They are tested every Monday. But there were many times when I would hear the alarm going off, which one would presume would be due to a chemical release or an accident or a spill. But oftentimes, these were just mistakes. So some of the other sites of concern that we went to were places like the riverfront or back into the bush, where many of the people I spoke with expressed concern with engaging in these sites anymore, kind of fear of fishing, wondering, you know, what contaminants were in the river, were in the wildlife, fear about eating wildlife, game from the community. And just this kind of disconnection from the land, which has been such a vibrant part of their culture for so long. So it's certainly a really stirring place and probably the most deeply troubling and disturbing and affective place in my experience is the cemetery. And the cemetery has been described as a donut hole because it sits in this unique space next to the highway, surrounded by chemical plants. Also, crossed through by the rail tracks. There's a siren right next to it. So, I worked on a film with youth. It's called Indian Givers. There's a scene featuring poetry from Ada Lockridge, and it ends with the sound of the siren and footage of the cemetery. And you get a sense of just how disturbing the industrialization has been for this community and how devastating it's been. And in my own experience, as someone who did a political ethnographic approach, you know, living there and immersed in the community, attending events, doing some participant observation and also being an observant participant, I was invited to a range of ceremonies. One was a funeral and I remember being at the cemetery and I could barely hear the drumming because the sounds of the flares and the smokestacks were were so loud, the vibrations were so loud and you could feel the warmth and the heat and it was literally making everybody's body vibrate. So it's certainly not a place where you can easily rest in peace.
1: Can you give us some salient names and numbers of corporations, First Nations people, other people, animals,
0: The community that I worked with is the Amjanong Nation, and I worked really closely with the Environment Department. So in the community, they had sort of a division of labor between the Health Department and the Environment Department. So I sometimes kind of went between these different committees, but I most closely worked with the Environment Department of the Reserve. And a lot of their responsibilities include responding to these requests for permits, where the corporations ranging really from Every multinational corporation from Imperial to Suncor to Shell to Lanxus. A lot of them have plants there or affiliates there. And if they want to expand their production, they need to request a permit from the Ministry of Environment, and that's a provincial ministry. So that's not the federal level, but sort of one level down. And so the Environment Department has this responsibility to respond to these requests. But the strange thing about these requests is sometimes there's only 30 days of a public comment period. And so the Reserve had to request for a different permitting process, you know, under their rights as indigenous citizens in the country. So often they were sort of having to push back on the norms and practices of the state to highlight that not only they have unique indigenous rights, but also they live in a really unique situation where the volume of requests, it's just overwhelming. And it's really hard to keep up with, you know, with limited staff, there were three staff people working in that department. Given that my background is in a Foucauldian analysis of governmentality, I was really really interested to see the way in which state power took form through some of these more subtle community practices where the sort of devolution of responsibility for keeping these corporations and plants accountable really fell heavily on the shoulders of citizens living there who are fairly under-resourced. So if we kind of, I guess, scale out from the communities within Amjana, You have about a thousand members that live on the reserve and a thousand that live off. So the population is around 2,000. They had concerns in the 90s and early 2000s around a declining rate of male births in the community and a a skewed birth ratio, which received a lot of attention from the media. And findings of the study were published in 2005. And so there were quite a few health concerns in the community and this question of governance and jurisdiction and responsibility emerged where there were a lot of questions about who's responsible for funding a health study to figure out why we're seeing so many problems, including a birth ratio that's skewed, including elevated rates of cancer, all kinds of mental health concerns that go underreported and undocumented. If you scale away from Amjnang, the next governing body in close proximity would be the city of Sarnia. So the municipality of Sarnia is about seven kilometers north of the reserve, but technically the reserve falls under the jurisdiction of the city of Sarnia because it was annexed. But that annexation, I really want to point out, is highly contested. So many individuals and leaders from Amjnang would say we are not part of the city. We have our unique jurisdiction our unique sovereignty, but it was formally annexed, which led to the kind of ease of permitting of these corporations over time. And then if we scale up a few more levels, we have another player who is the Ministry of Environment at the provincial level who has the responsibility to oversee the Environmental Protection Act, so the, the laws locally at that provincial level, with their unique responsibility of issuing permits to these plants. Technically within Canada's federal system, environment is a shared jurisdiction, but the provincial governments play the primary role in, in licensing and permitting. And then we have a unique situation in Canada where the federal government has this fiduciary technical legal responsibility for Indigenous lands. And that authority follows from not just Confederation in 1867, but the Indian Act of 1876, and also a series of treaties. Treaty 6 has a medicine chest clause, and that's been interpreted to mean that Canada federally has a responsibility for Indigenous health. It's a bit of a, what I've called the policy assemblage because this jurisdiction is layered, it's confusing, it's ad hoc, it's discretionary, it's piecemeal, and it's not very clearly delineated. So citizens are living here, their homes and their livelihoods are in this community, but they're encountering this layering and this assemblage of jurisdiction and law and confusion every single day that enables this ongoing permitting and this ongoing exposure to these toxins. Um, and you, you just simply wouldn't see that in non-Indigenous spaces. So issues around race and equity certainly emerge in this context. And that's why I talk about it in the context of environmental reproductive justice
1: environmental reproductive justice will turn to. Let's pause with policy assemblages for a moment. Why do they matter for your inquiry and thinking about your part as a researcher who's come and gotten involved in this site and the work the community is doing? How do you respond to these policy assemblages intellectually and politically?
0: For me, a policy assemblage does borrow from the work of Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, who talk about the assemblage in A Thousand Plateaus. And what I took away from their work were three facets of these assemblages. So one, institutions the second discourses, and the third practices. So I look at the way in which institutions, discourses, and practices have enabled the continuation of this confusing configuration of authority and responsibility and power. So if I look at the institutional dimensions, this would relate directly to law and policy and authority to make decisions about land use and about permitting these plants. If I'm talking about discourses, this is where I'm looking at the language that becomes apparent in the framing of health studies in the framing of the problem, in the labeling of Indigenous citizens as at fault for what's happening, the framing of epidemiology, which tends to suggest things like, oh, this is a small sample size, the health outcomes from the small population, they're not generalizable, therefore they're not credible. The discourse of lifestyle blame came up over and over again in press statements, in my interviews with local authority figures, and it, it came up informally in conversations I had as well. And I often say that the antagonist in this book is really this supposed individual hero who is supposed to just be a perfectly healthy person without consideration of the environmental context. So really this this work is about, you know, situating citizens within their communities, within these broader assemblages. And then if we think about practices, I also trace and document the way in which these laws and discourses kind of trickle down and through the community and affect the community's agency and activism and this devolution of power assumes that the community members themselves are going to gather all of this data. But the problem that I noted in this work is that while the community might gather a lot of data, whether it's health data or whether it's chemical release data or data about what's in the air at the time of a release, the data that they gather is continuously discredited by higher levels of power who have the decision-making authority to pass laws. So this assemblage, I don't look at it very favorably. I look at it as kind of a disturbing problem of settler colonialism that is designed to not serve the best interests of the Indigenous citizens that live there. So there really is, I think, a need for imagination and new ways of shifting away from this assemblage, which I talk about in terms of sensing policy and policy justice, where you have the citizens who are most directly affected having a much greater say in the design of these processes and these institutions. And over time, what I noted and observed at many of the town hall meetings I would go to or many of the consultations led by some of the neighboring corporations. They were really a kind of afterthought consultation, which is very insufficient. And so we really, really, really have to rethink not just consultation, but co-creation and imaginative, deliberative design from the outset that doesn't treat communities like they're just afterthoughts.
1: So you you really get very powerfully both at the politics of knowledge associated with these conditions and the politics of health. On the one hand, the assumptions of responsibility by official agencies and their impositions of responsibility and the section of the book on lifestyle blame really captured many of these elements very well briefly set out a little bit more of what that lifestyle blame which you mentioned already refers to and then again both what is the response of the community to those interventions and how do you respond as a
0: researcher? So the lifestyle blame issue often came up in terms of assuming that community members were making poor choices about their health whether that meant drinking and smoking and not eating the right foods as if that would be the reason for the skewed miscarriage rate or the skewed birth ratio or the elevated rates of cancer or mental health or so on and that just it really offended me and I think part of what draws me to looking at problems of injustice hearing about that kind of blaming and that framing and that shaming it just really struck a chord with me and I wanted to understand the context better. That led me to diving really deeply to do this immersive work. This idea of lifestyle blame, it just totally removes individuals from their environmental context. So I sought out to try to understand that relationship better. What does it mean to live in a place like Amjanong? What does it mean from an Anishinaabe perspective to live there? And what does it mean to live in this environment when it's polluted and toxic? And the language of lifestyle blame also came up in press releases. So I did discourse analysis of local media as well as national media. So I looked at how public figures in and around the community would talk about this place. And certainly there was this emphasis on on resident lifestyle choices. And that certainly, to my mind, reinforces this kind of neoliberal idea that You know, you need to sort of pick yourself up by the bootstraps and and figure this out on your own. And so, in everyday exposure, I'm really trying to highlight how this system has been designed in such a way that the colonial system itself is what's producing this problem. Certainly not individual lifestyle choices.
1: So, how does environmental reproductive justice figure in this?
0: So, I was really inspired by the work of Elizabeth Hoover, who's an Indigenous professor at Brown, and she has actually worked with. Um, Amjnong and other communities to look at the connection between cultural survival and physical survival. So, one of the concerns here is not simply just the biological concerns of being physically exposed to these unknown mixtures of toxins, but also the inability to reproduce culture because a lot of Anishinaabe culture, for instance, is really close to the environment and there's this fear of the environment now because of the fact that it could be toxic and polluted. So, if there are ceremonies that involve water and certain medicines like cedar trees and uh, sweetgrass and so on, there is a, I would say, a lack of comfort because of this fear of contamination. And so not only is there this fear of the loss of physical health, but also this loss of cultural health. And if the community is unable to kind of physically reproduce because there's you know, challenges with physical reproduction, and there are challenges with the reproduction of their culture. That's where I found Elizabeth Hoover's work really helpful in terms of pointing that out that this is not just a sort of physical health problem, this is a cultural health issue. For me, the reproductive justice element it it goes beyond thinking about inequity, about the disproportionate socioeconomic conditions that lead to certain communities living in marginalized places over others. The reproductive includes discourse. It includes language and meaning, and the ability or the inability to practice ceremonies and protocol and culture. and And understanding those connections, I think takes time as well. It takes time and care and energy sitting with elders, hearing their stories, speaking with them about their ceremonies and their practices. And it requires sensory, caring, gentle, intimate approach to research, which is quite different than a lot of kind of standard research methodologies that you learn about in textbooks, for instance.
1: Sarah, let's take a short break for a network sponsors message and when we return we'll talk more about the politics of methods, the relation of text and image and sensing policy. Welcome back to the second episode in our new series, New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, in which we're featuring Sarah Wieb's Everyday Exposure. One of the arresting features of the book is its haunting photo essays and accompanying poems and short passages of prose. The photographs really are evocative and right from the opening pages set the tone for the book very well. We'll post a couple of them to the webpage with thanks to the photographer and listeners can see for themselves those images along with a link to the photographer's website. Sarah, who are the authors of these photographs and readings and what's the relationship between them and the text in the book?
0: So these photographs were taken by Laurence Boutet-Rock, who is a photojournalist and longtime collaborator and friend. And we met a decade ago at the time she was in photography school, and I knew that she had an interest in Canada's resource extraction industry. And I was going to Chemical Valley over and over again as I was starting up my field research And I convinced her to come along with me um, because I just felt like I wasn't going to be able to reach a wider audience with text alone. And she agreed. And so she came first with me in 2010. And as she'll say, it changed her life because it led her down a path of pursuing a master's degree. And now she's doing her PhD in environmental studies where she's looking at sacrifice zones across Canada. And so her and I together have been very committed to trying to raise awareness about environmental injustice issues in Canada, to highlight that Canada is not as welcoming, tolerant, hospitable, peaceful, as people like to think that there are these edges and these edges require some exposure. And so we've teamed up and she wrote the prose for these photo essays, and we work together on the themes. So the three themes are life, atmosphere, and resurgence. And so what we try to do is really create a sense of place through these thematic photo essays. So she showed me her images, and we kind of worked together to edit them down and select the images that we thought would most appropriately touch on these themes. So the life series tries to show that this is not just an atmospheric problem. This is not just an issue of industrialization and land. It's also about people's everyday lives. And people live here. um, They engage with the environment no matter how polluted. Even if they're fearing it, they're still living there. They're breathing this air. So we wanted to give a sense of liveliness to this place and not just make it seem like a derelict wasteland. So not just have sort of muted landscape shots, but also images that show the culture and the strength of the community. And then we end with the theme of resurgence. And this is such an important theme. We have many pictures of youth who we got to know through our decade of work in the community. And we wanted to show that, you know, this struggle is ongoing. It's not over. There are people speaking up and standing out. And so we wanted to really end with this sense of you know, reimagining what's possible in the future. LaRonce's image also graces the cover of the book, which is of an eastern cottonwood tree. And that tree is also very meaningful. I had shown an image at a workshop on the west coast of Canada and Coast Salish Territory at the University of Victoria when I was a postdoc fellow there. And one of my Anishinaabe colleagues said to me, Sarah, you need to think more about that tree. And I I didn't really know what she meant at that time. She said, no, go back to the community and show some people that tree. And so I showed an elder and I showed a poet the tree image, and immediately they wrote poetry to correspond with it. And Laurence produced several images of the tree. So one is where it's being choked out by pollution, and then the other concluding image is one where it's very alive and green and lush. These images are accompanied with poetry where you have a young person talking about concerns with the tree and then concluding the book with with the voices of an elder, highlighting the importance of cultural and environmental survival. I've later learned that eastern cottonwood trees also have a lot of meaning for certain ceremonial practices of the Anishinaabe community. And this tree was just something that I was drawn to right away. It's a very large tree um, that you'll see next to the band office when you get to the reserve, which is a stone's throw away from some of the plants. And so it's not uncommon to see this tree being choked out by pollution that might look like fog, for instance. So it's a very beautifully haunting scene. And I think that kind of beauty and that haunting and that horror, those are all elements that we wanted to, I think, convey in these photo essays and in this work overall. I think environmental justice work has to be both critical and also really creative and also collaborative. I don't think I could have done this work by myself and having Laurence by my side the whole way through made it survivable because it's it's really, really heavy work sometimes talking with people about their everyday exposure to toxins and their fear about not being able to reproduce their culture in future generations. So I'm so grateful for Laurence and for her openness to this work. And and she's now developed relationships with that community and she's continuing to work with them. I think that's been really meaningful for me and and relationships has to absolutely be central to all of this work.
1: Does this go to the point that you made earlier about methods that you learned as you researched that either had not been taught or perhaps cannot be taught in the classroom?
0: It's a great point. When I did my methods classes. Um, they involve statistical analysis and survey, data gathering, some interviewing techniques, and a little bit of a discussion about case studies, but not about field research, not about ethnographic methods. And I really followed my gut on this work. I saw a film and I started talking with people and I just thought, I I have to do this project. Like This is really troubling and it's not okay that this is happening. And so I just felt this kind of personal commitment to it. I remember my some of my professors saying things like, oh, this work is so emotional. And and I wondered if that meant that it was seen as not serious enough or not scholarly enough or rigorous enough. But then I just started to kind of own that and say, yeah, this is affective work. It's emotional work. It's intimate work. And that's important work. and And this is necessary to environmental justice. And you can't do this kind of work if you don't care, you have to absolutely care. And that's really different than the conventional sort of positivist, removed observational type method in political science, or perhaps mainstream sciences that assume that you need to watch your bias and be removed and objective. And and that just absolutely was not my method at all. I lived really close to the community. I had dinner with members of the community and shared the struggle with them. Certainly these, these methods, this ethnographic sensibility was not something that I learned from the academy, but it's something that I learned from the community. And I often say that I learned just as much from the community as did the academy, if not more from the community, because I learned how to talk about my emotions and feelings and senses in ways that were appropriate to the community context, but sometimes difficult to translate back to the academic context. But now I think I'm finally developing the language to talk about this kind of sensory ethnographic approach. And I'm excited because now I get to teach these methods classes myself. And so I can hopefully kind of change the way that we think about methods in political science.
1: How do you teach differently from a conventional class?
0: So right now I'm teaching a class called The Politics of the Ocean and I'm having students walk a particular beach and talk about the sensory politics of this particular coastline and so I've asked them to do an ethnographic approach where they take notes on you know, the location, where they're going, and pay attention to their senses. So what do they see? What do they hear? What do they taste? What do they touch? What do they smell? What laws relate to this beach? Who has access to the beach? How is this beach used? How has this usage changed over time? So I'm really trying to actually put sensing policy into practice with my students, and then they'll come out of that with photo essays that they share back to their peers, where I want them to cultivate a sense of place and a connection to place through this kind of intimate relational approach, but then also, of course, think about law and jurisdiction and policy and land use change over time.
1: We haven't yet disaggregated your sensing policy. Can you spell out the different aspects to sensing policy and perhaps bring us back to chemical Valley and say something about how this idea, sensing policy, emerged out of the work that you did there, and then what the implications were for your inquiry when the locus of the inquiry became sensing policy.
0: One of the first things that I'll say about sensing policy is it's an orientation to policymaking that doesn't happen simply in a cubicle or in a boardroom or in a high-level public official decision-maker's office, but it has to involve the field of relations in some way. And so when I think about the first time I went to Chemical Valley, I was invited by a community member to go on a toxic tour to put my body in this place and to smell the unknown mixture of chemicals in the environment, to feel the vibrations, to taste diner food, uh, hear the laughter of children playing at the daycare or the band office or the resource center to really get a feeling for what it's like living there. And so sensing policy is is about bringing those feelings and those senses and those emotions into the policy making process. And so in the book, I talk about sensing policy as comprised of four main components. So I talk about lived experience, really trying to document and understand what life is like in these kind of everyday contexts. Related to that, are situated bodies of knowledge. So not just documenting these experiences, but also treating the expertise of these community members as a kind of truth, as one of many multiple sets of truth claims that are possible. The challenge has been that many advocates from the community have not been taken seriously, and the knowledge and the data they've gathered has been seen as unscientific or not generalizable. And so sensing policy is saying the opposite, that their knowledge is valid and needs to be incorporated into better policy. The third component is jurisdictional or rather multi-layered analysis. So noting that it's important to look at lived experience and it's important to look at citizen experiential knowledge as these bodies of knowledge, but you also need to have an attentiveness to the law and the context that shapes and governs these relationships and shapes and governs the relationships between citizens' everyday experiences and their knowledge, and how knowledge claims are represented and channeled or discredited. And then the fourth component is geopolitical location. And so for me, that's about bringing together geography and political science, so looking at place and power and how these sites have been configured in particular ways according to different sets of authorities and so Omjung is uniquely situated in the middle of this chemical complex and that was allowed through a series of policy and legislative decisions over time and so i try to trace that that time that allowed this assemblage to coalesce around this community. So for me, geopolitics really involves looking at the geography and the the space and kind of putting that that space and that time together, looking really carefully at at laws and decisions like annexation, for instance, and the effects of the Indian Act and changes to the Indian Act, um, changes to citizenship policy for Indigenous people, changes to having access to lawyers. All of these kinds of policy and procedural decisions had affected the sort of geopolitical configuring of this place. So those four main components are really crucial to sensing policy. And sometimes when I'm talking about sensing policy, I show a picture of a body map. And the community has done these body mapping exercises where they've gone door to door and gathered data about health concerns and then visualize this data with color-coded stickies to represent different health concerns, whether it's arthritis or miscarriages or cancer or mental health concerns, and visualize this on these life-size body maps. But I think government decision makers don't really know how to respond to that kind of data, this kind of sensory, visual, gathered data from the community. And so sensing policy is trying to be a bit of a bridge between knowledge systems to highlight that we need to take community knowledge more seriously and find ways to channel that into decision making.
1: Can you give a specific example of how sensing policy might have affected policy change?
0: That one is really hard to answer. I know that the book was given by the community, by Amjong staff to policymakers at all levels of government. And I know that even Shell has done book club readings of sensing policy. So it's interesting that government staff and corporation staff are, are reading this book. I haven't really had direct conversations myself with them about what they make of it, which I would be very curious to have. But I was recently invited by the Ministry of Indigenous Affairs, actually just last month, to come and give a talk. And and this was an encouraging step for me because the talk involved a film screening and then me providing some context and background and explaining sensing policy to ministry staff. And so I again I think that Visual imagery can be really powerful for striking an emotional chord and creating a connection, and giving a sense of place and showing policymakers that when they're making decisions about permitting plants, that these affect people's everyday lives, their health, their mental health, their well-being, their future choices and trajectories. So they screened the film "Indian Givers" that I'd worked on with the youth, which is made up of several vignettes that are youth-led interviews where they're. Um, connecting with members of the Amjanong Nation and also decision makers, asking kind of key questions about life in Chemical Valley. And so the ministerial staff watched it, and then I came in and I gave a 30-minute talk about sensing policy and about collaborative filmmaking, and then was available for questions. What surprised me the most was the lack of dialogue. I was hopeful that there would be more opportunity for back and forth and exchange. But it felt like most people came there to listen to me and to watch the film and kind of sit with the information. So I think the next level would be some kind of forum where policymakers felt safe to talk about these issues. So I was grateful to have that opportunity. But I I certainly got the impression that there's a long way to go to have this kind of sensing policy approach, inform decision making around resource use.
1: I suppose something that has an unusual texture and flavor as as your work would also take some time to digest. And perhaps that's one reason that you don't get that initial engagement. Time will tell. If we can expand the readership further still, what do you hope that others working on similar situations elsewhere might find of interest in the book?
0: I'm excited now to be working on a team project about sea level rise, actually. And we're going to try to bring sensing policy to sea level rise issues where we're looking at how citizens living at coastlines are concerned with the issues of sea level rise and then try to develop value-based tools that are designed with a really specific policy audience in mind, the local government, and they, they kind of want guidance in terms of how to move forward to think about responding to this creeping crisis of climate change and sea level rise. So that will involve reaching out and, and public engagement with a range of affected parties, including homeowners, but then also fishers and the Native Hawaiian communities. Ideally, sensing policy would be really attentive to the needs of those whose lives are most at stake and then trying to include their voices early on.
1: That's the main project that you're working on presently. Is there anything else which has come out of everyday exposure that's leading you in new and interesting directions?
0: Well, seascapes have captured my heart and mind lately, but I should also mention that I'm actually wrapping up my second manuscript. And the title of this project is Life Against Emergency, Interrupting the Gendered Biopolitics of Settler Colonialism. And it started with an examination of responses to former Attawapiskit chief Teresa Spence's hunger strike. And I, again, was very disturbed by the mainstream media coverage and political responses to her decision to put her body in the spotlight. And so I found myself glued to the media, reading every single article and listening to every newscast I could about her action. And then I did a more systematic discourse analysis. And what I noted is that her driving concern was this desire for Canadians to respond to their duties as treaty partners, And so I began to wonder, what does it mean to be in a treaty relationship today? And that's what Teresa Spence was asking Canadians, and Canadians didn't really know how to respond to that. So I've written a book that responds to it, and it's a very layered book. It has even more visual imagery than everyday exposure. It actually is going to be in an online format as well as interactive stories. So each chapter has interactive elements that are going to be available through University of Minnesota's Manifold Press. And my draft conclusion is already on there, where I look at music and treaties and artistic expressions of treaties as living entities and not as just surrenders or secessions, but these continuous relationships between humans and more than human lives. So I'm really proud of the conclusion, but I still have a little more work to do in terms of the historical analysis. So I did something I had not done before, which is a very deep dive into archives, into archival materials to look at a specific treaty where Teresa Spence is from, Treaty 9. And I was really horrified by what I found because I learned a lot about the biopolitical expressions and desires and intentions of colonial state administrators in supposedly negotiating these treaties. And then I sort of put that... In the context of Chemical Valley to realize that there's a continuation of logics here that are not really conducive to cultivating Indigenous life. So I end the conclusion in a more hopeful direction, which is drawing on the voices of musicians from the community where the lead singer of a band, for instance, Adrian Sutherland, um, talks about what treaties mean to him and why treaties are relevant to his music and his art and to cultivating vibrant, flourishing lives with humans and more than human life.
1: Sarah, let's get the link for that draft conclusion and share it for listeners who are interested to take a look and anticipate what sounds like another incredibly important and urgent study coming from you soon. That's just fantastic news. Sarah Webb. I'd like to thank you very much for joining this new Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science special series episode to discuss everyday exposure.
0: My pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out and for your time and putting this together.
1: Thank you to everyone for listening in. If you're a member of the show Book Club, you can get in touch with Sarah and you and everyone else. I hope you'll join me, Nick Chasman, for the next in the series when we're going to tack back to another how-to text in interpretive research from the Routledge series on